0: Startup Exits are the most sought-after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft.
1: Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Josh Hicks, who is a co-founder of Plated. Welcome to the show, Josh.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Plated is a meal kit service company. It is one of the biggest and one of the best in the game. Uh, Just after five years of being in business, the company was acquired by Albertans uh, for somewhere around $300 million. So a very, very successful story, Josh. But first, I want to start off with the early days of your entrepreneurial journey. Uh, You did your MBA at Harvard. And a lot of the MBAs, they typically choose, or maybe not typically, but they choose the corporate uh, path. Uh, In your case, you chose startups. Uh, What made you want to choose entrepreneurship and startups over going corporate?
0: Well, first off, thanks for the kind words, Andrew. And you know, it's uh, it's good that you start with early experiences because you know, I like to tell people, mostly seriously, that you know, Plated was uh, was I think the standard sort of you know fifteen year overnight success, um, <laughs> at least in the, in the sense that I started uh, kind of working in and around startups uh, in college. Um, I was in college through the through the dot com bubble. And was building software and, and other tech products, and and really kind of paying my way through school doing that. Uh, and then one of those one of those sort of small projects turned into my first company back in two thousand and three. So wow. you know, years before Harvard Business School, I was out making all of the all of the worst mistakes you could possibly make. And I'm happy I, I did that early in life. But um, you know, all the people mistakes, all the fundraising mistakes, all of that. And, that's certainly not to say that I'm not still making you know plenty of them, but hopefully, hopefully, have made the the really big ones uh, and, and won't make the you know won't make them again. So at HBS, by the time I was there, uh, I had never done anything but startups and you know and work in, in tech, and so it was a or I actually briefly went into finance afterwards, which was you know a helpful experience and, and learned a lot and met a lot of smart people, and it was. Um, you know, good for me to, to sort of see a different size and, and style of company, uh, but very quickly realized that uh, where I was best and, and most comfortable was in uh, building and, and running you know, teams and, and technology companies. So I don't know. It wasn't much of a choice for me.
1: Mm-hmm. So it looks like you got started with startups way before uh, you went into business school. And I know there's, there's probably a lot of people out there that are thinking about starting their own company and they're also thinking about going into business school, doing their BBA and MBA. Uh, would you say that a business degree was valuable to you in your startup career?
0: I would say the business degree is, is fine. It's, it's, you know, it's a piece of paper. Uh, the experience uh, and meeting all the people, and it's somewhat of a truism, but the, it's the network. That's what you get from an MBA. It was all really smart people I met. And I certainly don't mean just you know being able to call people working at you know, investment firms or, or, or what have you when you needed help or, or capital. I mean just the, the life experience of having met a much broader set of people. You know My, my experience pre-MBA, was uh, Georgia Tech, which was a phenomenal engineering education, but you was know, only one experience and was heavily, heavily technology. Um, and then living in mostly small cities, so you know business school exposed me um, and an international crowd that I had never really had any real exposure to, uh, and the, and the life lessons contained in there were invaluable for me.
1: Yeah, I could definitely see that, especially in a place like uh, like Harvard. There, there's a very interesting and probably a, a somewhat controversial argument that I've heard uh, about MBA getting an MBA and and doing your own startup uh, that essentially getting an MBA could be detrimental uh, to running your own company. And uh, what what this person said, the the reasoning behind the argument was essentially that going through business school uh, and maybe more broadly school in general could put you in sort of a rigid way, uh, a very structured way of thinking about things, which is in a way the opposite of how startups and and founders should be. Obviously business school, as you mentioned, has worked out incredibly well for you. You met your co-founder, Nick at Harvard. Uh, but do you think there's any merit to this argument?
0: No, I think any overly broad statements are, you know, kind of fall down. The idea that business school w- would be great for everybody is equally as silly. Yeah, uh, I think the idea that categorically going to business school or, or law school or, or engineering school or anything else for that matter. Um, would be you know categorically good or bad? I, I think is, is just sort of a shallow thought. Um, you know, I think that there are lots of different cuts of the data. Um, certainly, some of the research around you know, startup formation suggests that a lot of the most valuable companies get started by people later in their career, thirties yeah. uh, you know, and forties. Um, you know, and and I, and I would be hard pressed to 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 disagree with. You know, if you, if you spend 20 years of your, your adult life in, in corporate America, you know, you're, there, there's a level of structure being introduced to your thinking through that as well. So I don't know. I, I think nothing's for everybody. I think you got to figure it out uh, and understand, you know, sort of what you want out of, you know, any experience, business school in this case, uh, and just decide. But I certainly don't think it's categorically bad. And, and at least, you know, for me, it was great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely agree with what you said about, you know, successful entrepreneurship being typically people that are um, in like in their forties and thirties. Uh, I think a lot of people think of successful startup founders as kind of the, the Facebook story, a college dropout goes on to build a huge story, build a huge company. But in reality, it's, it's like you mentioned, it's people that have been in a certain career for for a while. They see a problem, they solve it. Um, well, after you finish your, your so, MBA. Right? I mean, there's more
0: people later, but I think that's part of the fun here is you know there are patterns probably, but uh, if it were if it were easy to reduce to a formula, then you know VCs wouldn't be needed.
1: Exactly. Um, so after you did your MBA, uh, you uh, obviously started Plated, huge company everybody knows about it. But what I was uh, was very interesting for me is before you started Plated, uh, you started a company called Plus Screen. Uh, it's a mobile app platform which was acquired in the first year. Of being in business, Uh, how did that
0: happen? So Plus Green was really more of a product than a business. We hadn't gotten to to building the business part. So a good friend of mine uh, and I started a good one of my best friends from college, and I got together. Uh, We had some time on our hands. We wanted to to build something together, and we were really just enjoying the process of building as much as anything else, and. We're building some software that was helpful, I think, in a, in a, in a, a horizontal sort of broad sense. It was kind of mobile, uh, you know, mobile web authoring tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had no real business model, no real, um, you know, we had some guesses, but no real sense of how we'd commercialize it, monetize it, uh, or anything else. And pretty early on, uh, we started bumping into people in the ad tech industry Which we didn't know basically anything about who were very excited about the the capabilities and so it just quickly became clear that uh the right thing to do was you know sell the business which was really selling the product um which again you know it was not a huge outcome Mm -hmm. uh it it was great for everybody involved but you know it was a a tiny little business um but huge amounts of learning which Mm -hmm. i think is you know kind of a cliche but it is really the point at the end of the day i mean you know if not learning and enjoying it at some point it, it all stops being worth it
1: yeah yeah and uh, so so it looks like it was a pretty pretty early stage exit uh, a couple of months after the sale uh you started plated so talk to me about how how did the early days go with plated like wh- how did you guys come up with the idea what was what sort of problems did you want to solve
0: yeah so nick and i so my one co-founder nick taranto we had met in business school. So we'd been friends for four years at this point and got together and decided, you know, we'd been, we'd been talking about it for years, um, you know, in the way that I think a lot of people, you know, sort of over, over drinks, hanging out with their friends, talk about new business ideas, uh, but, you know, had never done anything about it and decided that we, we had the opportunity. Uh, maybe it was the last one, maybe it was now or never, but in any case, it was the right time. But we had no idea what we were going to build, so we locked ourselves in, really, in Nick's apartment, uh, which his wife did not enjoy. But um, thankfully, she let us use the place for the better part of six months to figure out what we wanted to build, um, and tried to be disciplined about it. You know, tried to to go through some structured thinking around, you know, what do we care about? Uh, I think you do have to care about what you're building to get through the tough days. So, you know, what mm-hmm. kind of what areas are we interested in, um, sort of health and wellness and nutrition uh, and, and really health care and the place, the ways that those things intersect was some of the early thinking. Um, looking for places where there's opportunity, you know, starting the 100th Me Too company is not a great idea, um, certainly very difficult. So looking for you know, areas where there, there wasn't a lot of startup activity. Uh, wasn't a lot of corporate investment, um, you know. Even just looking at going and reading the public filings of a lot of the companies in these in in this sector that you're interested in can be really helpful. Um, and uh, looking for places where it, those two broad things, you know, overlap. So places, things that we were excited about that you know seemed to have opportunity for for innovation was, in a nutshell, how we thought about it, and. Uh, that led us to to food, and nutrition, um, and we were excited about the idea of helping people really eat better to 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 be healthier, eat better to live better, and um, you know that evolved into to meal kits and the you know the first versions at least of plated.
1: And this was in the year two thousand and twelve, uh, which was around right around the time where some of your competitors. Uh, we're getting started as well. So I believe uh, HelloFresh was, I think, like a year earlier. Uh, Blue Apron was, if I'm not mistaken, the same year. Uh, were you aware of the competitors at that point, or was it all too kind of too early stage market-wise?
0: So we we were not aware of HelloFresh. They were, uh, as far as I know, still only in Europe. Um, Blue Apron started after us, so there was no way to be aware of them. Um, but looking around more broadly, you know, it's kind of fun to think about and crazy to think about to you know, in 2018. But in the summer of 2012, when we got started, there there was really nothing happening in food. You know, very little. There was obviously some, some bright entrepreneurs around working on um, you know, other food businesses, drug competitors and, and otherwise. But there wasn't a lot going on. You know, there was there was sort of the, the early pioneers like Seamless and, and some of those folks. Um, but, you know, everything that's happening today, whether it's alternative proteins or, you know, all the delivery platforms or, you know, meal replacements, there's, there, there's so much happening today. I mean, the, you know, Bowery Farms and the, and the indoor farming, there's a lot happening in food, which is really exciting. But virtually none of that was happening back then, um, which, you know, kind of made it in, uh, a relatively easy decision. Um, you know, the lack of, of, you know, innovation and competition, uh, you know, kind of a, I think a reasonable way to think about it is that there were no conferences named after it, right? There were no food tech conferences. I'm pretty sure that label hadn't been, you know, invented or applied to anything yet, uh, which I've always thought is a a reasonable way to think about it. Um, -hmm. so that was where we are and, and, and we got excited enough to, to take the leap.
1: How do you look at competition in general? Uh, I mean, there's, there's kind of some people on one side uh, that say that competition is good. Uh, in a sense that one, it validates your idea. Two, there's a lot of things that you can, link, uh, you can learn from your competitors. And then on the other very extreme side is, uh, maybe not very extreme, but on the other side, uh, there's, there's other people that would say that comp- start things where there are no competitors or create your own markets, your own, your own industries. Uh, when starting a new company, or, or if you were to start a new company now, how would you look at competition in general? Like, would it be a good thing or a bad thing is there good kind of competitors bad kind of competitors what are your thoughts on that
0: i think if, if i had to pick absolutely start something with no competition <laughs> i i can't imagine a, a rational argument for wanting competition uh at, at, you know at sort of the company level I, I mean broadly speaking it's what makes capitalism work and lots of very positive things work but um for your company i mean you you should of course Want to not have competition? Now, I think more, more pragmatically, I do agree that you know, in general, if there's no one working in the area you're working in, like it's harder to believe that there's a real opportunity there. Yeah, um, you know, and, and some of that is just how you define competition. You know, what I was saying is we didn't have you know hardly any, hardly any competition in the in the form of other startups, but clearly people are buying food, right? I mean, the grocery stores were competition in a real sense. Seamless was competition in a real sense. Um, depends on how you frame it. But, uh, you know, overall, less competition is definitely better for you. I mean, we, we felt, you know, we felt the margin pressure. We felt the, the customer acquisition cost pressure. We felt, you know, all of these things. Um, I will say we did, we did try to take, you know, take a page out of the Amazon playbook and focus on the customer, not the competition, which is mm-hmm. not always easy. Um, but I, I certainly you know, strongly believe, you know, unless there are network effects in your business or there's some reason to believe it's going to be winner take all or winner take most, which commerce tends not to be, then you, know, you, you shouldn't be focused on the competition because it's the competitor or it's your customers who really are deciding whether you stay in business or not.
1: And okay, so you guys, uh, you decided to go the the kit uh, path, and um, you started Plated. And I find that in the very, very early stages of a startup, and I'm talking about like almost idea stage, maybe there's some kind of customer outreach, market research, and maybe some product is being built, but just very early stage in general, uh, the excitement level of the founders is through the roof. Uh, at least that's what I found with, my, with myself. I mean, people start kind of counting, thinking about what, what sort of things are going to buy when they have an exit. It's just people are very excited. And reality sets in pretty quickly. Like you, typically when you launch or you start getting some real feedback from customers and then it's just uh, the, the world of pain just starts to begin. Uh, was that kind of a similar experience that you guys had in the early stages? Did you have a lot of kind of difficulties or were things um, running more smoothly? <laughs>
0: We had more difficulties than, uh, than, than we could have possibly imagined. <laughs> I think the difference was, I'm not sure. I mean, we were very excited and very passionate about the, the space and the product and everything. But I think having been through you know, a handful of startup experiences between us before, I think we knew enough, knew better than to be you know <laughs> Pollyannish about what was going on. I mean, we, we knew it was going to be hard now. We severely underestimated how hard it was going to be. I mean, we we had a very difficult time raising money. Uh, we had you know a number of times where we came very close to running out of money. Um, even in the very early days, uh, we actually launched on the day that Hurricane Sandy hit New York, uh, and, and were very nearly within several inches of being flooded out of business before we ever really began. Oh. Um, you know, we, we had every problem imaginable.
1: I think I've read somewhere that you guys got yourself, uh, you and Nick, uh, got yourself into uh, before, uh, I would imagine, you guys raised capital. Uh, you ran up some credit card debt and some, uh,
0: um, is, is, that, is, is that a true story? We had, we had a very healthy amount of student loan debt just to begin with. <laughs> so that, yeah, that, that is certainly one of the downsides to, to an MBA or any you know, undergrad, graduate school, school of any kind. So we started in the hole, pretty far in the hole, and then to fund the business, I mean, absolutely, credit cards were, were oftentimes the only the, the only method. So we were uh, we were two hundred percent into the business.
1: Yeah, uh, it hits very close to home for me. My brother and I, when we started our first company, same story. Like we we maxed out everything we we possibly could, uh, from credit, uh, credit cards to lines of credit, just everything. Um, how did you guys raise your your first round, or wh- wh- when did you raise your first round?
0: You know, it, it's a good story. So, we we spent several months pitching anyone that would take it, you know, anyone that would listen to us. Uh, our count was we. It took us about two hundred pitches to get to a yes. Wow. and it actually turned out to be. And I, you know, I, I think that. Luck really is does play a huge part in all this, and, and you know, being prepared sort of allows you to to you know be ready for the the, the lucky event. But in any case, we got introduced to a group of uh, Israeli angels out in Silicon Valley uh, who had just sold a business and were were you know sort of going through their their vesting and integration period, um, which meant they you know they couldn't leave and work on the next thing. But they had been talking about something very similar to to play uh, which meant that they got it, they were passionate, they were entrepreneurs and operators, um, and uh, you know, were were willing to take the entrepreneurial leap with us. So after, you know, months and months of day in and day out just having doors slammed in our faces, uh, we, we finally met these guys and they very quickly said yes.
1: Well, on the topic of raising capital, uh, the company or you went through Shark Tank uh, two years after getting started in 2014. What was the main motivation behind going through Shark Tank?
0: Well, I think there's probably obvious, but there's there's two things you get out of it, Uh, other than just a lot of fun. I mean, it was just you know a fun fun life experience. Go out and and sort of do the TV thing, and you know meet a bunch of interesting people, the other entrepreneurs and the sharks. Uh, That was all worth doing, you know, even if we got no money and even if it were never aired. But the two main reasons, I think. Are you raise capital and there's a whole bunch of PR and you know for, for those two things it's it's very very worth it you know it's um there's something like 11 million households that watch it and it's you know it's very high profile and you know the sort of advertising value is, is very high and then you know, clearly uh, every one of the sharks has you know a pretty big balance sheet and is investing and um, if you you know find the right person it can be very helpful also.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you guys, I believe, got an offer from our Cuban and then that fell through. But uh, sometime later, uh, you eventually accepted capital from Kevin O'Reilly, which. Kevin O'Reilly, but yes. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, he made back like over a thousand percent, I think, on the investment. So uh, I think it was a pretty positive outcome for both the Sharks as as well as the founders. Um, Besides. PR. Uh, so, like you mentioned, you got a lot of PR from Shark Tank. Uh, how did you structure? And this may be kind of a, a too big of a question, uh, but how did you structure marketing uh, for your company, which is which is a direct to consumer company? I know you wrote a, a blog post about um, unit economics and CAC and uh, lifetime value. Uh, t- talk to me at a high level at least. How was marketing set up for for Plated?
0: Well. We always thought that it was best to have it in-house, so we, we built the team in-house. We had some agency partners and, and you know, worked with a number of different people over the years, but by and large thought that it was a, a competitive advantage and a core part of the business, so we built the team internally and you know, had a fairly traditional team structure, uh, a handful of you know, digital marketing folks, a handful of brand marketing folks, uh, and then some offline people you know, running TV and, and out of home and such. Um, and we just tried to be as data-driven as we could be. I'm I'm sure we got that wrong sometimes, and, and it's not exactly an original thought. But I think that you know the the sort of magic is in the execution, uh, and just tried to tried to do as much you know testing as learning, testing and learning as we could um, to figure out you know who the best customers were and, and how we could best reach them, and and those things you know evolve and, and move over time, especially on the, the channel front. Um, I, you know, the way we used to describe it to investors was I, I think by, if if you if if you had come into our office in those years, you know, buying media running ads yep. looked an awful lot like a trading desk at a hedge fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was all just metrics and you know, and the, the the brand folks had built the creative and were making sure that everything was, you know, going to be resonant with the customer. But when it came time to actually, you know, do the ad buys, like it was highly quantitative.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, I I think you touched on it in in your article uh, that um, like paid ads, Facebook, Instagram, all that, it's, it's great. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to scale up. But as as time goes on, it it becomes less and less effective and becomes more and more expensive. So it's important to have a a balanced and a a, a strategy with multiple channels. Uh, Let's switch gears to the acquisition. So five years uh, after the company was started in in 2017, uh, you guys got acquired by Albertsons. Uh, it was a three hundred million dollar deal, reported. Uh, and what was fascinating to me is that you mentioned it was a ninety day, so a three month long process, which uh, is very short form from, um, from what, what it typically takes. How come so fast?
0: Yeah, it's it's a good question, and I think the answer is similar to you know to, to a different question that people ask, which is you know how how did How did you build and sell the company so fast? Um, And and, you know, the answer to that is is what we started with, which is, in a lot of ways, it took 15 years to get to a place where you know I, you know, Nick and I, but certainly just speaking for myself, um, you know, had had enough experience to to build a big business. Um, And I think it's a similar thought here. You know, it was 90 days, but we had been getting to know you know all of the major grocery companies and grocery execs for. Probably four years. I think in the second year, you know, we started um, just you know regularly making sure that we were getting to know and, and, and spending some amount of time with you know anybody that would be relevant. Um, you know, really because we were trying to, to distribute our product through the stores. You know, we, we, we always thought that selling meal kits through the grocery stores would be important. Um, you know, there just wasn't. We could never sort of negotiate the right deal. Uh, it's a yeah. It's a tough industry. Um, historically, it's not been you know, that fast moving. Um, and so you know, it was kind of a very slow business development process. Um, but in the summer of 2017, I think when Amazon bought Whole Foods, it, there was more urgency in the industry than there had been you know, maybe ever, certainly a long time. Uh, and so when that happened, the fact that we, you know, that we knew all these people, we, we didn't go from, you know, sort of dating to married in ninety days. Like we'd been talking to all these people for a long time, mm-hmm. and I think that really was the the key point. I think it applies to investors. I think it it certainly applies to picking co-founders. I mean, any kind of these relationships. Um, you know, spending time getting to know people is just sounds obvious, but uh, I think it's important, and and you know, and, and sometimes very valuable also. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, most of the acquisitions that happen, they start off with as a relationship one way or another. Uh, did Plated and Albertsons have any sort of partnership before the acquisition or was it just more like, hey guys, this is what we're doing. We want to get to know you. Um, or was it, was there anything more official as far as partnership goes?
0: Nothing more official. We didn't have anything more official with, uh, with any of the, the major chains.
1: How was that transition like? Uh, after the acquisition to to Albertsons,
0: it was uh, it was interesting. You, you know, it was um, we transitioned from you know a five year old company, which uh, is is pretty young, that um, had grown very fast, right? So we went from you know the, the two of us to roughly thirteen hundred employees, um, which meant that you know we had a lot of a lot of systems and, and you know policies and everything else that were still kind of. Being created in a lot of ways, it was a young, you know, young organization, um, based in New York and entirely online. And we partnered up with a very, you know, storied, um, you know, mature, you know, very large organization, multiple hundreds of thousands of employees, uh, twenty five hundred stores around the country, and you know, almost entirely offline in retail. So complementary, but very, very different, and you know, I think required both sides to to learn a lot, which was the point in a lot of ways. But um, was uh, definitely a, you know another steep learning curve. I mean, the the first six months felt a lot you know different in some ways, but but similar in a lot of ways to the you know the first six months of the of the business, uh, just in terms of you know learning learning and the the, you know, the pace of activity and everything else, and and also. Um, you know having to climb the learning curve on, on retail which we knew very very little about
1: yeah yeah uh, i w- want to talk to you a bit about the future of um, food technology as a very very broad category uh, as well as uh, the, the future for yourself um, do you have any sort of predictions for food tech in the next five ten years what sort of things do you think we, we can anticipate
0: you know, I wish I had better thoughts. It, it's such, it's always been a, a, a funny question to me um, because as as all the entrepreneurs out there will appreciate, you know, when you're, when you're building your business, uh, you hardly have time to think about, you know, your your dog or your kids, much less, uh, you know, new ideas. Um, so I don't know that I have any, any real insightful thoughts there. You know, I think all of the the big trends will continue. I think, People generally want healthier, fresher food. Uh, I think that you know the better for you categories will do well. Um, I think there's a lot of innovation, you know, to come in the in the supply chain, um, especially for perishables. Um, although, you know, the, the how exactly that'll play out, I I don't know. Um, so, you know, it's it's a it's a tremendous industry. I, I think you know it, it, it has a lot of problems in a lot of ways. Um, you know, both from a business standpoint, I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of food is relatively low margin and challenging. Um, You know, it's also starting to become somewhat of a public health crisis in terms of, um, you know, weight and diabetes and metabolic problems and everything else that, you know, sort of poor nutrition is, is, you know, the effects that poor nutrition is having on the country. Um, Healthcare costs are obviously wildly out of control. Uh, So I think there's, you know, probably some interesting things in the, more functional food, kind of area. Uh, but none of that's particularly original.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you mentioned this, which uh, the, the, the supply chain for, uh, for perishables, sorry. Um, that's something that I always found very fascinating uh, supply chain, distribution, logistics of perishable items. Uh, how does that happen? Like, how, how did you guys
0: take care of that at Plated? We. <sighs> We were using a a, you know, a very large pre existing network of suppliers, and then trying to partner with them to to you know change things in the way we needed them to be changed. So there's obviously you know a huge network of logistics and suppliers and everything else out there. I mean, you know, every restaurant plugs into this network. Um, we were the same. You know, we started out looking effectively like a restaurant. To you know the various produce suppliers, meat suppliers, et cetera, um, and uh, just you know over time, partially because we were figuring it out too, but had to you know to work to partner with them to do things like portioning and uh, transparency of sourcing and you know other other attributes that we wanted out of the product. Uh, but you know it's a it's a huge industry. We're, we're all eating you know several times a day. Yeah. Uh, By all, it's just uh it's not the most efficient there's a lot of waste um you know and a lot of systems that are still offline or relatively offline done on you know spreadsheets or, or clipboards um you know but there's there's also a lot that's been happening over the last few years that uh you know i, I don't i don't i don't even think i'm particularly current on mm-hmm. uh,
1: on, on the topic of the future of food tech uh What's maybe a different way of looking at it is what sort of big barriers uh, that are uh, in the industry now uh, that need to be overcome before we see any sort of maybe radical change or radical innovation?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I might say distribution. You know, I think it's, I think it's as hard as it's ever been to build a big audience of, of consumers. So even if you have the best product in the world, uh, building, building an audience and, and building a business is, uh, is tough. D-
1: distribution from a, like a marketing perspective or from a logistics? From a
0: marketing perspective.
1: Okay, got it. Um, as, as far as yourself, uh, the, the future of Josh Hicks, um, <laughs> do you see yourself starting a new company in the future? Do you want to kind of lay low for, for a little while?
0: Plan is to start another company. Uh, it's, what I, uh, it's what I enjoy the most, and there's certainly lots of big problems left to work on, um, but what that is and when I, I don't know.
1: Do you have any plans of going back into into food or maybe start something a little bit different? Or is it all up in the air?
0: It's all up in the air you know I, I, I like the I, I like food, uh, both as a business and as a just as a consumer. I like. Uh, I like markets that you know are, are big and impactful for people, um, but that's you know those are pretty broad statements, and um, we'll see. We'll see. It it needs to be the right opportunity, um, both meaning that it's something that I am passionate about and uh, feel like I can build a successful business in, but also you know a a big enough opportunity. Um, so we'll see. There's a lot of work to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, you've got. successful companies under your belt and we hope to see another success story in the future uh thanks a lot josh for being on the show Uh, it was a pleasure
0: yeah well i appreciate that thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode subscribe and share it with your friends also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show this podcast is brought to you by startup soft to learn more visit startupsoft.org